You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is Michael Boll. Michael has been a swimming coach for 33 years and counting. He has been the coach of Australian swimmers who have been on the podium at every Summer Olympics between 2008 to 2021. Some of his most notable athletes include five-time Olympic gold medalist Emma McEwen and three-time Olympic gold medalist Stephanie Rice. In 2000, he received the Australian Sports Medal and in 2010 was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for service to swimming. Michael is the type of leader that puts you at ease as soon as he says hello. He has an infectious energy that draws people to him, and he couples this with a style that emphasises personal accountability and the importance of character when it comes to elite performance. He is also able to zoom in and focus on the small things, and then step back and engage with each athlete on a vision for their future. He's just a terrific bloke, and in this wonderful interview, some of the highlights for me were his view that failure is the fertiliser of success, how swimming coaching is a combination of art and science, and the analogy he uses about a stagecoach and the horses that drive it 
to illustrate what is required in preparation for a major event. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as we did. And just before we go to the interview, if you're a first-time listener, you can check out our library of interviews with other great coaches at our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. And now, please enjoy our interview with Michael Boll. The Great Coaches Podcast. Michael Boll, good morning and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Pleasure to be here. So very much looking forward to talking to you today. And could I start with something really simple, Michael? Where are you in the world and what have you been up to so far today? I've had a very busy day, actually, Paul, to be honest, today. It's been a bit chaotic, but I'm, in, I'm on the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia. Today's been a bit of a busy one. I had to sit on a Swimming Australia meeting. There's a whole bunch of recommendations that have been put through after a review. And they were looking more particularly at females, sort of female coaches and their role and how we can get them a little bit more active. So that was a big two-hour meeting. As well as that, I had a visiting swimmer from India arrive at the airport. I had to drive through a lot of traffic to pick him up and settle him in at the hotel that he's staying, took him downstairs to, to shop for groceries. He's only fairly young. He's, he's been here before. He was here two years ago. And he made an Olympic qualifying two years ago in 2020. But with the cancel, or not the cancellation, the postponement of the Olympics, his time didn't count. So he had to re-qualify in 21 and he, and he uh, couldn't do that from India. So the Indian Swimming Association and uh, Glenmark Pharmaceuticals have decided to fly him out again in the hope that he can regain some form and hopefully, you know, swim well all the way through to Paris. There's that selflessness I love in great coaches. So sounds like you've had a great day and I'm looking forward to chatting with you about high performance and all other stuff related to that. But could I start, Michael, by just going back and talking about some of the great coaches that, that you've experienced in, in your career? I can see there's Dennis Cotterell, John Carew, Bill Sweetenham, Laurie Lawrence, and then you've also had the chance to meet Wayne Bennett and Lee Matthews from other sports too. But from this wonderful experience, what is it you think the great coaches do differently that sets them apart? I think they're all individual and, and kind of do things their own way. They don't follow the well-trodden path. They're looking for new ways of doing things. Someone like Dennis Cottrell, the first person that you mentioned there, was someone that I really looked up to. He's in his 70s, Dennis, and he looks like a, a, a surfer still. He's still very, very fit. Whenever we go away on teams, Dennis isn't on the team anymore, but when we did, he'd be the only co- uh, coach that would take his shirt off to get some sun. We'd all keep ours on, but he, he's, he's built like a 25-year-old athlete. But he he really taught me a lot about swimming. I know that um, we've got this big meet called the Queensland Championships that runs for a week. And any meet that runs for a week, there's going to be dead moments of time where you've got no one swimming. My first port, port of call was always to go over to Dennis and spend half an hour here, half an hour there, just picking his brains about coaching and his beliefs, his experiences, training sets, a whole range of different things. And there's something that I still use to this day. So we're very, very lucky in Queensland to have the high level of coaches that we've had. Bill Sweetenham, Laurie Lawrence, John Carew, Joe King, Scott Volkers, Stefan Vidmar, you know, the list goes on. Simon Cusack, Shannon Rollison, Vince Raleigh. They're all Olympic medal winning coaches and there's a great history with Olympic swimming in Queensland and the people that have gone before us have been very generous with what they've shared. And I think it's it's really helped fast track a lot of us coaches that are around my age and maybe even a little bit younger. They're very, very grateful to the influence that they've had on me. Michael, I have this wonderful quote from you, and I'd like to read it before I ask the question. You say, to make a difference with the people that you are coaching, I think you've got to connect. They've got to feel that you care for them as a person first and as an athlete second. And it, it made me wonder, 
in the context of this quote, what is the role of a coach at elite level swimming? I think it's one of those multifaceted roles. I think you're a psychologist, you're a coach, you're a parental figure. You're spending a lot of time with these athletes every day, you know, up to four or five hours. And a lot of the parents in particular, sort of these days, mothers and fathers, but in particular fathers, I think, probably don't see their kids till nighttime and they come home from work because the swimmers are leaving first thing in the morning and they don't get home till 7, 7.30 at night. They're probably only spending an hour, an hour and a half with their parents through the day. So you're spending a lot of time with them. And I think your job first and foremost is to improve them. And I think as people first, but as athletes second. And looking at the character of the athletes that you've got in, like I think I've just seen over the years that I've coached so many very, very talented individuals that never, ever really achieved what they should have achieved. I think a lot of it was character related. They didn't appreciate. So even though you've got talent, you've got to work very, very hard. John Woden's one of my coaching idols and he's got that pyramid of success. And in that pyramid, there's a whole bunch of different building blocks and the two cornerstones he titles industriousness and enthusiasm. And his wording for industriousness is the understanding that to get success, you've got to work very, very hard. And the enthusiasm, it's quite obvious, the coach and the athlete both have got to be very enthusiastic about what they're doing in order to be successful. So you've been coaching for 33 years, not a short period of time, but you must have seen a lot of innovations, a lot of change over that period. What are some of the most impactful changes in innovation that you've seen? As I coach more and more, I guess, you know, you're learning every year. And I think probably a couple of things, I think the biomechanics side of things, you know, the skill acquisition starts, turns and finishes are very, very important. Like when you get to that Olympic level, you're watching races that are won and lost by a hundredth of a second. I think Kyle Chalmers was second by three one hundredths of a second to Caleb Dressel. And when you look at the individual hundred freestyle, Kyle's swimming speed is faster than Caleb's, but Caleb's start, his turn and his finish, the more you coach, the more you realise it's those little 1% things that make a difference at the end of the day. So I think that the sports science, I think swimming coaching in my mind is a combination of the art and the science. And I think sometimes I think the balance is very even. And then other times I think it's more of, a, more of an art. I think if you look too much and follow the science too much, you can't see the trees for the forest. I think your experience over the amount of time you've been coaching helps you make decisions every single day. So I think that wealth of experience, that library of training sessions, going to competitions and watching people race under pressure, when you get in the heat of the battle at meets like Olympics and World Championships, you're always reflecting and drawing upon experiences that you've had in the past. And, you know, they're not in textbooks. You get that experience by doing by failing, by learning. So I I value very highly the art part of it, but I also understand and get how important the the sports science part is. And I think the other side of the science, we as coaches have to have a fairly basic understanding of physiology. So I think that is a gimme. If you're going to write the programs and you're going to lead your troops to battle, you've got to get them swimming fast and you've got to get them enduring. So they've got to have a good amount of endurance and a good amount of speed. And it's finding that right recipe for each of the individuals that you've got in your program. You had Bill Sweetnam on the on the uh, podcast and Bill was my old coach. And, you know, back when I was swimming, not only Bill, but every coach gave every swimmer exactly the same thing. Whether you're a, a 50 metre swimmer or a 1500 metre swimmer, everyone did the same thing. And I think uh, post 2000, sports science kind of taught us a little bit more about being a little bit more specific and trying to train those energy zones 
that are going to improve the athletes that you've got. So it's using that sports science, not seeing it as being the panacea, but just using bits that you want to use to help make your athletes swim a little bit faster. Michael, you said two really interesting things there. You talked about a wealth of experience and endurance. So 33 years gives you the right to talk about endurance, but I want to jump into this wealth of experience bit because I've heard you say multiple occasions, it was your non-performance at the Olympic trials, which has become one of the drivers for you as a coach. Can you tell us a little bit more about the motivation that you took from that experience that now drives you forward? You're bringing back a very sore point, Paul. But oh, sorry, Michael. <laughs> we'll talk about No, no, that's all right. No, 1980 Olympic trials, I still remember it like it was yesterday. I just didn't swim as well as I'd planned to swim at that trials. And Swimming Australia took a very small team to Moscow. It was when that war was on. And US didn't send a team at all, and Australia sent really a half team. Uh, they just picked about 17 swimmers. Normally, they pick 30 to 40 athletes, but they picked a very, very small team. And uh, I think I, from memory, I got a second and a third or a fourth, I think it was, at those trials back then, and, and obviously didn't get selected in the team. And that you know, really hurt me. I didn't want to swim anymore. I still remember punching a hole in my, in my parents' uh, bathroom. I was so upset. <laughs> with how I swam down in Melbourne, it, it just stuck with me for a long time. And I was given a, a bit of a life raft by Southern Illinois University in the States. Bob Steele was the coach there back in the early 80s. They were a top 10 university at NCAA back in those days. And he sent a couple of Australians a bit of a lifeline and sent invitations for three of us to go over. Only two of us went. Anthony Byrne, who's still over there, one of Bill Sweetman's ex-swimmers as well, and myself, we both went over and that was really the saving for me. It was something very different, something I really loved, the challenge of racing short course and did reasonably well over there. Luckily enough, came back, swam in the 82 games uh, on the Australian team, which was a very, very sort of memorable experience. And then 83, I was swimming really well again. I was number one in Australia in three events, all was looking good for the 84 trials. And I know thinking back, I just put too much pressure on myself to make this team. 80 was such a letdown. Every minute of every day was me spending time just thinking about making this Olympic team. I was just building it up to be the biggest thing in the world and and once again didn't perform up to the level I should have. Top in three events, 200 medley, 400 medley, and the 200 back the year before the trials in 83 and was just very, very ordinary in 84. So I think that failure from my end was the, was the catalyst. One of my favourite sayings is, Failure is the fertilizer of success. And I think that that to me was something that really triggered something in me. And I, I, I didn't know it immediately, but when I decided to start coaching, which was by accident in 1987, once I had a taste of uh, preparing swimmers for the 88 Olympic selection trials, that was, you know, that was the thing that I knew I wanted to do. I wanted to become a swimming coach and uh, I've been coaching every year since then. I've read where you've said on a multiple interviews that becoming a swimming coach was an accident. But there's something in your story when I read through it, there's two themes that really come through for me, a, a non-swimming person and an outsider. First theme is helping people deal with anxiety. And the second, self-belief. I want to dive into self-belief first, if I can. You had a conversation with Stephanie Rice when she was in a teenager and you talked about what she was going to achieve and where she was going to go. And I know years, years later, she recalled that conversation to you word for word. So there was something in there about you recognizing the need for her to build this belief, this vision, and you helping her build that as well. So I wanted to ask you very broadly, what have you learned about the role that belief plays in us as human beings? 
Well, I think if you want to achieve everything you've got to believe, you can do eight hours of swimming training a day, 11 months of the year and line up at the end of the season and still not perform well if you don't believe. I think the preparation and the work that you do is a major part of it. And I I sort of talk about the neck up and the neck down. You can be in awesome shape from the neck down, but if you haven't done work from the neck up, if you don't really believe in yourself as a person and as an athlete, I think you're going to struggle to really get to the absolute best that you can be. So that self-belief to me, and I've learned this through the people that I've coached, there's been people there who I was maybe a little bit iffy that they could be successful, but they believed in some instances in themselves more than I believed in the fruits of that mindset. So I think something that over the years that you coach, I've got people in my group at the moment who've fallen into this category, people do a great job in the six months coming into a competition and then they come to you just before they're going to swim and they're in tears. They're so anxious and so uncertain about what's going to happen when they compete. And it's something you can try and help them with. But at the end of the day, they've got to be the ones pushing the positive button. You can lead them to the water, but they've got to drink the water. They've got to do their part. There's no magic fairy dust that we can sprinkle over their head and get them believing. They've got to be a willing party there when it comes to the belief state. It's a real two-way process. I think we as coaches must instill that belief in the charges that we've got working underneath us, but they've got to be big believers as well. I couldn't find a specific quote around managing anxiety from any of you swimmers, but I did find this one from you. And you say, the focus is to keep them relaxed. I think that is the most important thing you can do as a coach as you gear up in competition. Now, for many people listening, anxiety grows and grows and grows the moment we get close to a presentation or an exam or any kind of significant event. What techniques have you found to be more effective in helping people just lower their anxiety a notch or two? I think it's really just talking to them. And I think what I try and do in the days leading up to those big competitions is just tell them how proud I am of of what they've done, irrespective of the result. The result will hopefully take care of itself, but just revisiting what they've done over the six months leading in and how proud I am of the consistency and the level of effort. I think the two things that you can control every single training session are attitude and effort. They're the two big things that we try and focus in on. And if if you've got an athlete that's made it to the Olympic Games, they've obviously ticked both those boxes. So it's, you know, going back with them, not immediately before the meet, but maybe three days before, sitting down away from the maddening crowd, have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee with them and just tell them how how proud you are of them. It doesn't matter what happens in terms of the result, but you've done a great job getting yourself to this level and and just trying to keep them not thinking about what's coming up. Like you're going to try and distract them a little bit and talk about other things. So it's talking about their family, talking about their study, talking about their boyfriend, girlfriend. Just they've got to know that you care for them as a human being. And I think when you can have those sorts of conversations with people, and it's not just about swimming, 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 it's about their life as well. I think the connection that you make with the people that you've got working with you becomes even stronger. Like they've got to know that, you know, your care for them as people is very, very high. It's just so disappointing when you see someone not do well in a meet like Olympics, because obviously the bright spotlights are on them and the TV's there and, and everyone can see what they do. And I think there's those external things as well with meets like the Olympics, like all their friends and, and all their family and all their buddies from school. They, they think that going to the Olympics and getting a medal is something that's common practice. In every event in swimming, you know, there might be 80 people doing the 200 backstroke, 16 make it through to the semifinals, eight make it through to the finals. And we're talking about the world. We're not talking about Australia or, or just Great Britain or 
or Sweden, we're talking about the whole world. Like everyone who's doing that event that's qualified is there. They're there for that event every four years. And it's very, very normal for that anxiety to be up very, very high. But as I said, I think it's just the dialogue, just talking to them. I kind of look for signs of the behaviour that they don't normally do. Like if you've got someone who's a real social butterfly and then three days before the meet, they're over on their own, they're not talking to anyone, that's when the alarm bells go off on me and I make a beeline for that person and I, I start to talk to them about it. I think it's a mistake to sweep it under the carpet. If you see that behaviour that's not the same as they normally are, then I think you've got to address it and you've got to talk about it. It's okay to feel like that. It's very normal. And then I can talk about Stephanie Rice's story. She was in tears before she swam and, and still got up and, and uh, you know, won that Olympic medal. One of my favourite stories, actually, is, is from a swimmer called Daniel Kowalski, who got a silver medal in the World Championships in 1994. And he got a very bad case of vomiting and diarrhoea a couple of days before the meet. And Don Talbot, who was our head coach, met with the doctor, Brian Sando. And the doctor said, look, no way can this boy swim. He's lost six or seven kilos in two days. He's vomiting. He can't control his spewing and pooing. Sorry about that, everyone. But he wasn't in control of himself. There's no way he can swim. So Don said, Daniel, you're not swimming. And Daniel said, I'm swimming. And he hopped up and swam. He placed second behind Kieran. Kieran won it. He got second. And he went 14.53 for the 1,500. And the next seven years that he swam healthy, he never, ever went quicker than he did that day. He was violently sick and lost all that weight. So when you have an athlete come up to you and say, look, I'm not feeling well and I've got a bit of a sniffle, the Daniel Kowalski story comes out of the library (laughs) and you share those experiences with your athletes. So it's being able to to draw on those experiences. And Daniel wasn't my swimmer. He was one of Dennis Cottrell's swimmers. But everyone knows the story about that. Another good one is a Kieran Perkins story I love. Apparently, I wasn't at the 96 Olympics, but at the 96 Olympics, Kieran was battling for form. He swam the heat. He qualified in last position. He made the final by about two-tenths of a second, just scraped in very narrowly. And Greg Norman happened to be at the pool that day, right, the famous Australian golfer. And he was on pool deck. And Kieran had just finished his heat and all the coaches were talking to Greg and Greg was saying, how do, you, how do you think about Kieran's chances tomorrow in the final? He's got in. And every coach to a man said he's got no chance. He's way out of form. He's about 25 seconds over his best time. He's just scraped in. There's no way he can win. And then Greg just nodded his head and he walked over to Kieran and spoke to him for about half an hour. And then he came back to the group of coaches and the coaches said, what did he say, Greg? And Greg said, he's going to win that tomorrow. And they all started laughing. <laughs> And we all know that Kieran hopped up that next day and just led from start to finish, won the 1500. It was just a fantastic swim. So, you know, those reversals of form. I have to ask, what did he say? He just said that he felt he had one of his ribs he felt was a little bit out and his physiotherapist, Roger Fitzgerald, was on the team. And Roger twiddled around there for 45 minutes or so after his heat and sorted it out. And Kieran felt that the rib thing, plus the fact that he didn't shave down, so they were the two things that he felt was going to make the difference when he hopped up in the final there that next night. In his dialogue with Greg, he was very convincing to Greg and Greg came back and said he's going to win it. <laughs> That's a great story. I love it. So it's just amazing yeah. because we always have swimmers that line up in heats and they don't swim particularly well. And that's when you bring the Kieran Perkins story out. There's a ton of stories over the years. You know, you, you sort of see from people who, who made errors, who made mistakes, but they were able to remedy them under pressure. So you try and draw those stories in when you're talking to your athletes. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When talking about mental toughness, you said, first and foremost, it's about enthusiasm, a desire to want to come to training and get better. But what I wanted to ask you is, how do you handle it when enthusiasm wanes? Because There's a lot of people that experience that, particularly through COVID. Have you found a way of just slowly pulling them back in? Well, I think it's about accountability. They've got to be accountable. It's no good saying you want to perform at this level and come along on a day-to-day basis and be here. I actually gave my swimmers a talk two nights ago that I'll I'll share with you. We came back from the New South Wales Championships on Monday and we had a, a session Monday afternoon. And I was just talking about the next 10 weeks. Like I think it's important to give them the vision of what's coming up so they can put it in their own mind. Okay, what's coming up? I've got four weeks to the next competition. Then after that next competition, there's another six weeks through to the trial. So it's a four-week block and then a six-week block. And when I said to the athletes on Monday night, I said, I drew a a stagecoach up on the whiteboard. You know those stagecoaches with the big wagon wheels on them? And I said, the stagecoach, it can be a really fast-moving vehicle, but to drive it fast, there's got to be a horse up the front. And I said, over this next 10 weeks, your aim is to put 10 horses. Every week is a horse. You've got to put 10 horses at the front of your carriage. And your other competitors, they've all got carriages as well. And if they've only got two, if they've done two good weeks or three good weeks or four good weeks, in theory, your carriage is going to travel twice as fast as the other person's carriage. You can't control how many horses that person gets. The only person's horses that you can control is your own. So this next 10 weeks on Saturday morning, I'm going to be saying to you, Paul, can I put your horse out the front of your carriage? That's one, that's two, that's three as the weeks go by. So I think, you know, those little stories are just a bit more tangible for the kids and they um, seem to resonate. I think that's one of the things that we've got to try and do as a coach. You're trying to make that connection. You're trying to get them to understand the importance and the relevance of their training sessions, not just the week, but Every day, the 10 sessions you're doing from Monday to Saturday, it's not about just being there for the two hours. It's really about what you're doing. So if you've got aims and ambitions of making Australian teams, that comes with a lot of responsibility. You know, you've got to be able to, if you're talking the talk, you've got to be able to walk the walk. So you know what the standard as a coach has got to be for them to get to that high result. It's no good reaching for this and be training at this level. You've got to fill in the gaps and you've got to pull yourself up. There's no other way to do it. I can't I pull the fairy dust out of my pocket and sprinkle it over your head and get you to swim fast. It's you coming in and putting in great effort, having a great attitude, and those two things combined together. They can't guarantee success, but you're putting yourself in the best possible position to do something special. I was very interested to read about the fact that as a swim coach, you often can't accompany your swimmers to the meets that they're going to. And so- Part of your job is to teach them good self-management and discipline skills. 
which is of course important to everybody. So I wanted to ask you, what have you learned about the link between self-management, discipline, and ultimately performance? Well, I think they're all up to the individual. You've got to be there taking responsibility as an athlete yourself. I think, you know, there's a couple of good stories in that one. Kyle Chalmers recently broke the world record in the 100 freestyle short course meters. He was over in Europe for two months and his coach wasn't even over there and he popped up and broke the world record. So that's, that's testament to Kyle just didn't rock up and swim the world record. He would have been over there training without his coach. His coach, I'm sure, would have been writing sessions and giving him guidance. But when your coach is in there watching you, if, if you're not pushing and pushing hard, there's no way you'll get up at the end of it and break the world record. So that's performance in action, isn't it? He's not just talking about doing stuff. He's actually doing. One of the swimmers that I used to coach, I don't hear more, Mitch Larkin swam his best ever swims when I wasn't over there. He went to a World Cup in Dubai and went 53-1 and 153-1 in his backstroke races, which to this day are still his best ever times. So I'm not sure whether that's testament to Mitch being a great self-managed athlete or whether it's me being a dud coach. Every time I've been away with him, I wasn't able to get the best out of him. Or maybe think, a combination of both. I think the results you've got might indicate that you're not a dud coach, but I'll leave that up to you <laughs> to make a decision on. Michael, you enjoy interacting with other coaches. So I've seen pictures of you with other coaches. You've talked about them on this interview and I have a, a quote actually, which is, I want to play back to you before I give you the question. You say, it's just fascinating hearing the backstory. You think it's just a dream run for them, but when you sit down and talk to the coaches, you realize some of the hardships that they went through. And it's interesting because this theme of struggle runs through a lot of interviews with you, this whole whole idea of working hard. You referenced it earlier on, you know, working hard, being consistent, showing up. But I wanted to flip it around a little bit and ask, is there anything that you've uncovered or anything that you've reflected on when it comes to the line between perseverance and perhaps obsession? Oh, that's a tough question. I think it's a good question. I just love talking to coaches, as you said, and, and you know, listening to what they've done and the struggles that they've been through. I know this isn't a coach, but Brooke Hansen, the swimmer that swam for Australia and got that silver medal in 04. If you go back through history and look at the 96 trials and 2000 trials, she missed both those teams by less than a tenth of a second. And, you know, third time lucky, she bobs up and drags not only an Olympic spot, but she gets second in the 100 breaststroke at the Olympics beats Liesl Jones and gets a gold medal in the 4 by one relay. Like, I, I just love those stories of struggle and, and just coming out the other side triumphant. I don't really like telling people to stop. I think it's got to come from them. They've got to have the choice. They've got to have the desire. They've got to be the ones controlling what they do. I think my job as the coach is to really just help, to try and set the pathway clear for them to try and achieve what they want to achieve. And, you know, not everyone in your group can make the Olympic team, can win Olympic medals. Like the group that you've got is more about that. I've got 20 swimmers in my group at the moment and they're all not going to make the Olympic team, but they're all a really important part of what we do. If you were to talk to Emily Seabom or Emma McKeon, they'd both tell you how important that training group that they had going into Tokyo was for them. Like, you know, Tokyo was really, really tough. Both those athletes are older athletes. Emily's 29, Emma's 27. So the extra year really kind of hurt initially both of them because they they saw the closure of their swimming being 2020. They were both going to stop in 2020. And having a 29-year-old girl who's been on the team for 12 years extend out another year, like it was really, really difficult. But I'm just so glad that she did. 
And, you know, she felt like at times she wanted to stop. She never, ever told me that, but she told me subsequently, she said that, you know, there were a couple of times there where she didn't think she'd make it all the way through. And I've only since found out in the last couple of weeks, she spoke to one of the people who was on the support team for Swimming Australia that when we were in Cairns, she thought about not going through the Olympics. You know, she wasn't even sure if she wanted to go through there. She was just so kind of over it. It was just so protracted. Luckily, I didn't interfere and tell her, no, it's a good idea to stop. So I think I just let them govern what they do. But once they tell me that that's where they want to shoot for, then anything below that, that's when I I kind of step in. If if I see behaviour, if I see the level of training slip below the level that they're telling me they want to get to, then I just point it out very, very clearly to them that that's not what you need to be doing to get to what you want to do. If you want to get to that level, this is what you've got to do. They've got to have a good understanding of that. Michael, your father was a policeman and your mother helped raise you and your four siblings, as well as working other jobs. I, I read where you said she used to clean buses and so forth. This sounds like a, a strong ethical base for you to have as a coach. But I wanted to ask you, there's many stories about performance enhancing substances being involved in sport and swimming and, and all sports at the Olympics for that matter. But has there ever been a time that you were challenged ethically? And if so, what did you learn from your response no, I don't think I've ever been challenged ethically. I'm a big believer and it's got to be fair and, and everyone's you know working under the same conditions. I think I get a little bit annoyed, I suppose, when you see people who are testing positive to drugs being allowed to compete in Olympic Games. I, I just get I'm not very happy with that because, you know, everyone else is playing by the rules, but then there's other people that potentially aren't doing that. And I think that annoys me a lot because you know you're working with with athletes that are just you know over the four years between olympics are just putting themselves in the in the best position they can and doing it the right way and then when you see athletes who get caught taking substances still be allowed to compete it gets my eye up a little bit i i don't particularly like that so it's never really happened to me where i've been challenged that way but um, looking from the outside looking in i suppose it's one of the things that is quite sad about sport these days. You see it in a lot of sports that happened in swimming quite a lot through the 80s and 90s, and I think a good job was done to reel that back in. But you just hope that a lot of those things aren't going on. Like we put a lot of our faith, I guess, in in sort of WADA and FINA and our national testing agencies and our national swimming associations around the world to make sure those things are cleaned up. But I think there's countries that are doing it probably better than others in terms of policing what's going on. That's probably the bit that, that you know, makes me quite upset to see that happening. Michael, you've been very generous with your time. So perhaps just one final question. <laughs> and I'll preface it with another quote if I can. And you say, that's the style of person I love having in the group. Not always the best swimmer, but someone who contributes to the environment that we're trying to build within the club structure. Someone who's got the great attitude, someone that's always willing to drop the cycle or push a little bit harder than you're asking. That's the style of the person that I like working with. And if I'm going to have a pool full of people like that, I'll finish coaching a happy man. And it was the last <laughs> part of that that caught my eye, a happy man. So I wanted to ask you, in the distant future, well, you've actually come out and said Paris will be your last Olympics, but at some point in the distant future when you do finish coaching, what's the legacy you hope you've left? I think you just hope that you make a difference with the people that you've had working with you. Like it's just nice to hear from people who you've coached in previous years come back and say what a difference you made in their life and I think not only 
as an athlete, but as a person. And we've got people who have gone on and done medicine at university and, and so on and so forth. And there's, you know, there's a group of people who I still keep in contact with. The very first summer that I coached onto an Australian team in 1989, Angus Waddell, we still every year, at least once, sometimes twice, we go for a steak and a beer. And I think it's just nice to have those relationships that I've been coaching for a long time, as you said, 33 years. And he was probably in the second or third year that I coached. He was one of the swimmers. I think it was the second year. So I've known him for 31 years. And every year we still get together for a beer and a steak. So I think he's not the only one. But it's just nice, I guess, to have those sorts of relationships with the athletes that you coached formally. It's nice to hear them say that... They couldn't have done it without your influence there and it's just nice to be a part of it. We all know that the major part as a coach, if you haven't got athletes that have got the talent, haven't got the drive, haven't got the ambition, no matter how good you are or how good you think you are as a coach, if you haven't got that talented, ambitious athlete, you're not going to get any great success. So it, it really is a partnership and it's just nice to reflect back, I guess, over the 33 years, three years and look back to a lot of those successful stories that you've had. Michael. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a masterclass in, in helping prepare Olympic athletes and I wish you all the, the luck on the road to Paris. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be there. Hi, everyone. It's Mike here, and you've been listening to the great coach, Michael Bowl. Michael has a wonderful way of engaging with people, and some of the other key highlights for me were how he pointed out behaviors when they slip below the standard required for success. How building self-esteem in athletes is a two-way process, if it is to be successful. The role that personal character plays in converting your potential to elite performance. And wanting to leave a legacy, where he has made positive differences in the lives of people he has coached. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like Murray Noble, who said great interview with some lessons for corporate life as well as the local junior baseball team I coach. Thanks, Murray. The interaction with people around the world who listen gives us great energy. And so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. And all the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.